0: Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast, brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today, and hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Major Keone Medici, one of the professors in the National Security Law Department, ADN, at The Judge Advocate General's legal center, and school. We're excited to continue our outstanding professional development opportunity to our listeners in this third part of our series. We're going to hear from Colonel Eric Widmar, an experienced national security law practitioner, provide his thoughts on pursuing NSL assignments. Colonel Widmar currently serves as the Staff Judge Advocate of United States Central Command, a unified combatant command. Prior to that assignment, he served as the principal deputy legal counsel to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Colonel Widmar, welcome, sir. Uh, We look forward uh, to uh, getting to hear your words of wisdom. Um, And part of the reason, sir, we brought you on the show is uh, we were recently inspired uh, not only by your your current work, uh, but also uh, by your contributions in the Army Lawyer, your recent article uh, co-authored Leadership That Empowers People. So thank you, sir, for your contributions, not only to this podcast, uh, but also um, to uh, written scholarship. So first up, sir, as you think back on your career as a judge advocate, what specific NSL jobs did you have or pursue over other opportunities that helped lead you to where you are today?
1: Well, Keanu, thanks a lot for the opportunity. I really appreciate uh, the venue that this provides to kind of talk with uh, NSL practitioners uh, throughout the JAG Corps. Um, Two kind of foundational caveats before we get into this. Uh, Number one, I've never had a PPTO assignment. Okay. However, uh, when I was serving as the the Chief of Strategic Plans in the Strategic Initiatives Office, I did have a chance to work very closely with them on a lot of talent management initiatives. So, you know, since we are going to be talking about NSL uh, career opportunities and philosophies, uh, understand that I was very fortunate to work closely with PPTO and and kind of understand some of the some of the principles and and uh, challenges that they uh, go through in the assignment cycle. So that's one caveat. The second caveat is, you know, you ask specifically about NSL jobs that I've had or other opportunities that I have uh, pursued. Uh, the bottom line is, the last time I got my number one choice on my assignment preference sheet was 12 years ago at the grad course. I have had eight assignments since then, none of which were number one on my list. Frankly, seven of the eight were not even on my list. So I kind of I lay that as groundwork to understand that, uh, you know, to your question about specific NSL jobs, there are a lot of different avenues to success. And when I say success, That really depends on your own personal definition of success. I I think the reason why, or one of the reasons why you guys invited me here was because I'm the the staff judge advocate for a combatant command, you know, a four-star combatant command, which um, I think, you know, has been a goal for a long time. I do think uh, in the joint force, that's kind of the pinnacle of a, a legal job. You know, if that is defined as success, understand that there are lots of different routes to get there. For me personally... I, I'll just focus on uh, four assignments really quickly that I thought were kind of pivotal to my development to, to get me to where I'm at. The first was, of course, uh, my coming out of grad course, I went to the 75th Ranger Regiment. And this was in 2010 at the height of the surge in Afghanistan. And the reason why that was so foundational is as a very young major, it exposed me to the larger national security structure and the interagency and multinational partners and allies. So, yes, we were engaged in, uh, you know, direct action operations every single night, about 300 operations a month, uh, you know, heavy detention operations. But that, you know, the the tactical aspect of it wasn't the biggest benefit of that assignment. It was the exposure to the interagency. I actually had a commander that was very um, strategic thinking. He He took us all up to D.C., took all the field grades up to D.C., so that we on a TDY trip so that we could go and engage with the front offices and leadership in the FBI in the CIA in the NSA in the NGA you name it right in the national on the national security staff and so as a very young major having just come out of captain sometimes we think that the world revolves around the brigade or the division or the corps and so as a young major to be exposed to that much larger perspective i think was was fundamental the second job, and, and frankly, this you probably would not consider this a national security law job, was the Chief of Administrative and Civil Law at U.S. Army Pacific. It's a four-star uh, sub, uh, component command and the largest combatant command in terms of geography and population. But what the biggest takeaway from there was uh, year two of that job, the JAG Corps, uh, unfortunately, was not able to fill the Chief of National Security Law at U.S. Army Pacific. So as a senior major, my staff judge advocate at the time, Colonel Rick Martin, came to me and said, uh, hey, I know you are got your hands full with ad, ad and civ law, but I now need you to take over 205 jobs. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you delegate until it hurts and then delegate some more. And so that job really helped me to understand and test and implement processes and procedures to delegate without abdicating, right? Delegating, still wrapping my arms around everything that was going on in this four-star command, yet empowering my teammates and, uh, and you know, still having the systems and the processes to stay plugged in and understand what was going on, not just, uh, you know, wash my hands of it, which unfortunately I think some sometimes people confuse delegation with abdication. So that was a, that was a critical leadership experience for me. The third ones I, the third one I think was, um, my job as the chief of strategic plans at OTJAG because it really forced me to focus on executive communication and how do you take massive amounts of data and information and condense them into a five by eight card, bulletized so that it's useful for a three-star uh judge advocate who's about to engage in whatever the activity was at the time. So I, that executive comms uh skill set is one that can be developed and and I was first really exposed to that uh in that job and I, and I'm grateful for that. And I think the last one that I'd focus on is uh my last assignment the chair uh principal deputy for the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff or chairman's legal as we call it. And really that was um learning speed and how do you get faster because at that level i mean the 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 chairman is the senior military advisor to the president and so often issues that we were dealing with uh you didn't have the luxury of time and so how do you manage information how do you do knowledge management very fast and how do you coordinate how you how do you build relationships horizontally vertically to be able to get the information you need, accurate information that you need uh, immediately, that was an incredible uh, baptism of fire, if you will. I'm grateful for it because, frankly, all of these skills from all of those jobs are I employ daily in my current job as the SJ for CENTCOM.
0: That's fantastic, sir, and uh, and really leads us to um, what we're uh, looking at next. Is in your current position uh, with the duties and responsibilities? Explain for our younger judge advocates who may be interested in in pursuing that path to um, a COCOM SJA, how it is to practice NSL at that level.
1: Right. Well, I I think it goes back to what I experienced at Chairman's Legal, and that is, you know, the practice at a combatant command, a four-star combatant command, operational headquarters, warfighting command, the purpose is to solve problems. Okay? That's period, full stop, your job as a legal advisor is to solve problems. It's not just to say what the law is and finish there. It's understanding, it's applying critical thinking, developing relationships across the staff so that you know what other people are working through. Oftentimes, as uh, legal advisors, we're kind of the connective tissue with many members of the staff. Because we are involved in so many things, we may be aware of issues that other staff sections are who are kind of siloed, aren't aware of. And we have a, a unique opportunity to bring those people together uh, to problem solve. But I, I go back to my LC experience. And I think the biggest difference in practicing law at the combatant command again is speed. Uh, and I'll, I'll quickly tell a short story here. So Larry Fitzgerald, do you know him?
0: The football player? Yes. Larry Fitzgerald, sir?
1: Yes. Yeah. Wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals, future Hall of Famer, widely regarded as uh one of the best wide receivers in NFL history. So bottom line is, very accomplished. Uh, He was uh, the runner-up, to the Rookie of the Year in 2004. Uh, Had won all kinds of awards in college and things like that. Only played in college two years, and then was selected third overall in the NFL draft. So when they came to him after he was selected behind Ben Roethlisberger, uh, Rookie of the Year in 2004, they said, hey, what's the biggest difference between football in college and the pros? And without hesitation, he said, Speed. Everybody has to do the fundamentals, the blocking, the tackling. Everybody has to do that in college, and everybody has to do it in the pros. The difference is in the pros, everybody does it really fast. And I've always thought that that was an excellent analogy for a legal office that the good legal offices do all the fundamentals, the blocking, the tackling, the research, the writing, the communication, the coordination. Good legal offices do that. But the true pros, do it fast. So how do you do that? And really, to me, it boils down to people and and process. It's the relationships you develop to be able to get the information you need, whether it's the factual information or the actual legal perspective or rule, right? And that includes uh, vertical relationships with OGC and Chairman's Legal. It also boils down to process. How do you organize vast amounts of information? How do you retain information? How do you flatten comms and share information so that you never spend 30 minutes trying to find that one memo from the Secretary of Defense, right? And wasting that time that you've got information postured in such a way that it's easily accessible. So I think that's the biggest difference of practicing at a combatant command is speed, but those are skills that can be developed and they can be, be developed right now in any job that you're in.
0: Sir, so I had the pleasure of watching uh West Virginia <laughs> university, uh, beat the Pitt Panthers, uh, with Larry Fitzgerald, <laughs> um, back when, uh, Actually, uh, my my nephew was born, um, but that's a I think a, a an awesome story, sir, uh, to share and to emphasize that you know critical point of uh, of the practice area. Um, how pivotal it, we've heard a little bit through what you've shared, sir, over your previous assignments. Some of those that were more broadening opportunities, more on the professional development for leadership skills of managing an office, um, but to that. That younger population of judge advocates, how critical is it to pursue a joint service billet?
1: That's a great question, and I would refer you to the Army's own mission statement. The Army's own mission statement is to deploy, fight, and win our nation's wars. Most of the time, we stop there, but that's not the entire mission statement. The entire mission statement is to deploy, fight, and win our nation's wars, by providing ready, prompt, and sustained land dominance by Army forces across the full spectrum of conflict as part of the Joint Force. The JAG Corps understands this same principle. When you look at the OWN JAG Corps' vision statement for JAG Corps 2030, the JAG Corps 2030 will be the most highly trained, inclusive, and values-based team of trusted legal Army professionals who excel in our Army and Joint Force missions. So if you believe both of those authoritative statements, it's very important to have experience in both the Army and the Joint Force. If you go to JAGPUB 1-1 and just do a control f and look for Joint Force, it is replete with references to the Army and the Joint Force. Very rarely do you see the Army alone. It's the Army and the Joint Force. So I think that people should pursue opportunities in the joint force. And when I say the joint force, that's that's more broad. And I think we'll talk, hope that we'll talk a little bit about this when we talk about specific assignments, that's broader than just the joint force. It's also jobs that give you exposure to the larger national security structure, the interagency, multinational partners. and, And again, I hope we'll talk about that. But to get a little more granular, my joint assignments, I think, have given me experience and exposure to that large, that larger national security structure that my traditional army, uh, army assignments uh, were not able to give me. So, again, interaction with the national security staff, understanding how senior leaders think and process information and, and how that affects how I communicate information. Those opportunities are, are present in the joint, joint force because, of course, my combatant commander, his boss is the secretary of defense. And my combatant commander already has, has briefed the president multiple times. And so that process of helping him prepare for that, uh, you know, back to executive comms and understanding all the different variables that go into a conversation like that, that joint force experience gives you that. Having said that, my Army experience has given me opportunities that the joint force could not. So mo- most joint force offices are actually pretty small. I am authorized one attorney per service. And so the, uh, the leadership opportunities are very direct and personal. You don't get an opportunity to exercise organizational leadership. The Army provides those examples. The Army, uh, I, I have had those, been fortunate enough to have those experiences at 3rd Infantry Division and, and elsewhere, where large offices, where you've got to deal, where you've got to work with a large group of individuals that have you know different desires, different interests, different motivations. Um, you know, that's a very different skill set is, is leading a diverse group of individuals like that. And, and I think the Army provides that to judge advocates in a way that the Joint Force can't. And similarly, I think that the Army often provides an opportunity to really develop deep subject matter expertise that the Joint Force uh, certainly gives you that opportunity. But I think the Army does it uh, differently because we deal with such a large array of issues. And I think the national security law arena is becoming broader and broader as, as, as uh, things evolve. I think we get a lot of the benefit of, the, of our Army experience that. And, and uh, in, we get a larger, broader cross-section of legal experience through our Army experience. And frankly, there's a, there's a joke in the joint force that we spell joint A-R-M-Y. Because we are the largest service. And oftentimes in joint assignments, we have the largest contingent there. So understanding how the Army operates procedurally, functionally, you know, 15 sixes, a lot of what you do is investigations, understanding how to organize that and, and execute it well. Because if you screw it up at the combatant commander and in the joint force, well, the next level is the secretary of defense, right? So the Army gives you those deeper... I think, uh, subject matter expert experiences that are so necessary to being successful in the joint force.
0: Thank you, sir. To take a break from, you know, thinking about uh, pursuing the the joint service billet and exploring those opportunities, to you, sir, what's been your favorite, your most rewarding, most interesting NSL assignment, and uh, what did you like so much about it?
1: Well, some people may say I'm a masochist if I, if by answering this way, but I, I do think it was my assignment at Chairman's Legal. Uh, it was incredibly demanding. My first year on the job was the last year of the Trump administration. My second year, obviously, was the first year of the Biden administration. And those were eventful times, very demanding. And frankly, I, I became a news junkie because literally listening to, new, to the news gave me a hint as to what I was going to be working on that day when I got into the office, depending on the issue. But the other, so not only because there were real world opportunities to have an impact, uh, you know. Of course, the chairman again is the president. Uh, you know, the senior military advisor to the president. So being able to help him and prepare him as he engaged in those interactions was incredibly rewarding, incredibly demanding, but also very rewarding. So besides the subject matter that was so you know interesting and and dynamic, it's the it's the people that I had to work with at at LC. You know, by statute, technically the services are supposed to send quote their most outstanding officers to uh to the to the joint staff. Somehow I I fell to the cracks and still made it, but I found it incredibly rewarding prefer, professionally and personally to work with that caliber of individuals, people who were uh, came from a, a wide and diverse background, all the services, including the Coast Guard, and uh, that just really brought a different perspective to, to how to solve problems. And so it wasn't just, you know, the fact that the Navy were experts in law of the sea and things like that, but it was just the whole uh, approach to solving problems. And again, I think that is one of the strengths of, of, of the joint environment is that you do bring together diverse perspectives and experiences that in my mind only result in better problem solving because of the different perspectives that are brought to bear on it.
0: So what advice would you have uh, for the range of assignments, 03 to 06, best NSL positions a judge advocate can pursue?
1: Remember my first caveat. I have never been assigned to PPTO, but candidly, I I would refer everyone to JAGPUB 11, figure 7-3. So you figure seven three is a table that outlines national security law opportunities. <clears throat> I bring this up because, frankly, Colonel P. J. Perone at the time, who was the chief of NSL, and I, when I was the chief of Strat Plans, you know, I was able to work with him on this. And it wasn't just two guys in a back, you know, smoke-filled room developing this list. Colonel Perone cast a wide net to make sure there was a representative group that came together to discuss different NSL opportunities at grade to identify what are the jobs that give people the experiences necessary to succeed at the next level in terms of you know some of the things that we talked about earlier on opportunities to develop executive comms opportunities to develop leadership subject matter expertise that versatility that is so necessary in the NSL community you know this was a, it was a broad cross section from the joint force the army conventional special operations E-ring assignments in the Pentagon, which are very important, interagency assignments, multinational assignments. So this list really, I think, is, is a great resource for officers interested in, in the practice of NSL because it's not just my perspective. It is the collective perspective of a group of people, of wide and diverse group of people who have spent the majority of their, their careers practicing NSL
0: looking here, sir, for some words of advice to those younger judge advocates interacting with uh, their career coaches, looking for mentors, navigating the assignment cycle. Um, What advice do you have uh, for them?
1: First of all, I'd, I'd say, you know, I've been told for 24 years that you're your own best career manager. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, but people need to understand what that means. And it doesn't mean I want what I want, Otherwise, I'm taking my ball and going home. What it means is that you, as an individual professional, have an obligation to be educated and to understand what is the JAG Corps, what kind of officers and legal practitioners is the JAG Corps trying to develop, be self aware enough to know where are the gaps in your swing, and pursue those opportunities to fill those gaps so that you can be a well-rounded, versatile expert that the JAG Corps is trying to create. There's really, in my mind, there's really no mysteries here. Again, go to JAGPUB 1-1. It tells you what kind of officers and practitioners the JAG Corps is trying to develop. In terms of working with career managers, I would say be honest and be candid that PPTO needs information and TJAG and DJAG need information to make informed decisions. So I would not encourage people to be coy or to, you know, think that they're engaged in some kind of Machiavellian game when it comes to the assignment cycle. Uh, You need to be candid and forthright, but you also need to have a plan. Uh, So again, uh, I was very fortunate when I was at the Range Regiment, I had a, a senior JAG Corps mentor who shared with me his 10 to 15 year career plan. And this was a PowerPoint slide that brought together lots of different variables that come into play in the assignment cycle, right? So that, that includes, what are your own personal objectives? What are, what, uh, so for example, for me, my personal objectives have remained consistent throughout my career and that's to maintain work-life harmony, continue to serve as long as I can make a meaningful difference and minimize moves during high school years so that my kids, uh, you know, could have some semblance of stability. So this PowerPoint, you know, was, I built this PowerPoint based off what my mentor gave me. And it superimposed all these variables, you know, promotion timelines, MRD, uh, different, different uh, when my high school kids would or when my children would be in high school. So that when opportunities were given to me, I could measure them against those criteria. Because again, I go back to the fact that I have not Received my number one choice in twelve years. As a matter of fact, seven of the eight weren't even on my list. But when I got the phone call, literally would get a phone call. Hey, we need you to do this. I I could take that option with my spouse, superimpose it, measure it against this, these objectives, and know if this was the right thing for our family. And I've been very fortunate that they that they have been. You know, that's what I would I would say to individual officers and working with your career managers. Be candid. As a matter of fact, I have shared my PowerPoint with my career manager. I have given it to him and said, and I've had lots of options. You know, I've I've got it right here in the studio and and you can see I've got like six or seven different options, different routes that would be consistent with my my objectives, my personal and career objectives. So be honest, be candid, be forthright and give them options. As far as uh, fostering mentoring relationships, I think my advice on that really is for my counterparts and not the younger judge advocates. And I say that because generally I'm a big fan of ADP 622, you know, the leadership manual. But I think their discussion on mentorship uh, falls short. I think that mentorship is more than just career advice and talking to people you know as the assignment a cycle cycle approaches i think mentorship is more active and deliberate it's creating opportunities for people to be able to shine to identify talented individuals create opportunities for them to shine and put them into those positions and so when you talk about the people who are in positions of authority to do that well those are my counterparts and So I would encourage my counterparts to study mentorship deeply. And a book that I would recommend to them is is Athena Rising. This was a book on General Votel's uh, professional reading list when he was the commander of both Special Operations Command and Central Command. It's an excellent book about mentoring and what mentoring means. Now, it, it specifically focuses on mentoring women. Um, but it talks about the same issues, right? If we define mentoring as identifying talent and creating opportunities for that talent, talent to shine, and the reality is 93% of corporate America CEOs are men, well, if men don't do that, then you're limiting half the population. You're limiting individuals and their opportunities to, to, really their, to reach their potential. And so it's a very it's a much more active and deliberate approach to mentoring than just career advice. And I think that we we all should read this book. The whole, you know, the whole first half of the book is about shifting that that mindset to it's more than just being the, you know, the Oracle of Delphi and, you know, providing uh, advice from on high. It's a very active and deliberate uh, effort by those in positions and with authority to make it happen. And then the second half of the book are some practical recommendations. So while Athena Rising does focus on mentoring women and creating opportunities for women, it applies across the board, regardless of race, gender, creed, sexual orientation. It's about expanding opportunities for everyone. And so I'd encourage my counterparts to, to read that book. And then last, with regards to... Um, Navigating the assignment cycle, we've talked a little bit about this earlier on about being candid with your assignments officer, but also understand that um, there are a lot of variables that go into the assignment cycle, and a lot of them you have no control over, and neither does the JAG Corps. I am in this job as the SJ for CENTCOM because of a decision the Navy made. So my predecessor was supposed to be there for another year. But the Navy decided to pull him out and put him into a different assignment, which created an opening. Otherwise, I'd be somewhere else. We were deep into the assignment cycle, and I was headed somewhere else. And all of a sudden, this opportunity popped up. My point is, lots of factors come go into that play, right? Availability, upcoming boards. Senior JAG Corps leaders take this process. Because again, I was, as the Chief of Strategic Plans, I had an opportunity to kind of be in the room where it happened, if you will. And I saw this is this. I don't think they take anything more seriously than the assignment cycle and the assignments of personnel and taking care of personnel. And so they even get down to talk about if we put this person here, is their senior rate going to have the profile to help them be successful? That level of detail, TJAG and DJAG are getting into that level of detail. So there's lots of factors, senior rate of profile limitations, MACP, the married army couple program, high school senior stabilization, family health issues. I myself am grateful that the JAG Corps looks deeply into our personal lives because I have a son that's EFMP, and they took that into account in one of my assignments and I'm grateful for it. You know, another, another issue they take into account is you know if you've been off the grid and this is a danger with people who go into the joint assignment they they want to do joint assignment after joint assignment because frankly they are very rewarding and fulfilling but there's a danger in that and that is that you drop off the radar and visibility to senior leadership is important why not because of nepotism or cronyism but because of trust again it comes back to tjag and djag take this responsibility as sacred and when they're choosing leaders for the jag corps they want to know that they're choosing people who they can trust will take care of our most important resource people and will develop them and take care of them and i don't mean when i say take care of i don't mean like coddle and and i mean that will train them and give them the resources necessary and support them when they do when life happens and challenge and people experience challenges So it's about visibility for the purpose of developing trust that you, Keone, are the kind of guy that I can trust to put into a large legal office and take care of those those incredibly important resources. So, you know, that's what I'd say about navigating the the assignment cycle. Don't avoid DC because, again, it's an opportunity to not only understand the institution and uh, the larger army and DOD, but also an opportunity to develop uh, relationships of trust, sir.
0: Sure, that uh, absolutely resonated uh, very much with me in pursuing those types of assignments, and so uh, I appreciate the you know the the reminder of uh, DC is a uh, is a good place, uh, especially um, for uh, the the or, uh, organizational trust um, that is uh, so important within our corps. Um, for our, our last question, sir, looking at those judge advocates who do find themselves interested in pursuing national security law opportunities, What what is your best advice uh, for them on how to excel in those jobs and uh, those jobs in general? I think I've heard uh, practice of, of delivery of speed, of um, also uh, being a problem solver, uh, back to the three R's uh, maybe uh, from your article read the towel. It's good. Um, but what's your best advisor?
1: So, I mean, that's a, that's a whole separate podcast in and of itself. Right. And, and you're right. There's lots of advice out there. Um, and we've, we've talked a little bit about, it. I, I wanted to hit on something that I, I think that we don't often talk about. And that is that, you know, as judge advocates, we wear two hats, right? You're a legal advisor, but you're also a staff officer. So, learning how to work by, with, and through your teammates on a staff. Because again, as a national security law practitioner, you're going to be a member of an operational staff. AR, our ADP 622 defines leadership as an activity of influence. And so in that sense, judge advocates have to be leaders because we're never in positions of formal decision-making authority, right? We are advisors, but we can be leaders in exercising influence Across the staff, with our commanders, when we bring well-reasoned, well-researched arguments to bear on the problems that we're dealing with. And when I say by with and through, so for example, right now at U.S. CENTCOM, you know we are working with uh, GAO and uh, congressional interest on, you know the last 20, you know 20, 20 21 years' worth of ofSIbCAAS and um you know alleged LOAC violations well these are largely operational issues not legal issues so how do you exercise informal leadership by with and through the J3 to gather the information necessary to have a well reasoned well researched argument regarding how various operations have played out how do you work by with and through the PAO to ensure they have accurate information to represent the command well and be truthful obviously um and to not to not split hairs because that doesn't help right we have to be candid we have to be forthright the american public deserves it congress demands it so again our ability to exercise influence informally across the staff and empower those Staff sections to kind of take a step back and understand the broader perspective. I think that skill set is critical for national security law practitioners. And um, and really, it boils down to, again, developing relationships with people, relationships of trust with people on your staff. That they know what you they know, you're right. They know you know what you're talking about. They know you have the organization's interest uh, at heart and that you're there to help solve problems. You know, you, you mentioned the three R's. I don't know if we specifically mentioned them in, in the TAL article, but you know, the three R's that that we discussed a lot at, at Chairman's Legal was to be right, meaning not, not our number one job is to know the rules and the process. There is no substitute for being right. Uh, the second R is be responsive. Okay, again, that goes back to that issue of speed. We have to give legal advice at the speed of relevance. Otherwise, we don't add a lot of value to to the staff, or to the commander. So be right, be relevant, and finally be real. And that real part means understand that life happens, that people are complex individuals, that our solemn responsibility is to help them achieve their fullest potential. And that's different for different people. And people deal with different challenges in life. And you have to be real and authentic in discussing those and in helping people resolve those so that they can find success and fulfillment in their job as a, as a judge advocate. And, of course, that, and when I say judge advocate, that, that applies to all of our teammates. You know, I'm very fortunate. Half my office are civilians. And I have several paralegals. So that, across, that applies across the board, of course, is helping them all to achieve their, their full potential.
0: So I really enjoyed uh, this session with you, um, getting to uh, hear from you from your years of experience um, some uh, really standout points uh, that I think uh, younger judge advocates, um, our newest judge advocates coming out of the basic course, uh, will really enjoy uh, to get to have that kind of vision uh, for uh, what success looks like uh, and where to also uh, find it um, within uh, our, our publications. So we thank you so much uh, for joining us for this third part in our series on uh, national security law and professional development. Sir, I'll, I'll leave it to you for any, any closing comments to, to our listeners out there.
1: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I mean, I, the reality is I have far fewer years ahead of me than I have behind me, right? Um, I have found the JAG Corps to be an incredibly rewarding career, largely because of the people and the purpose. And so I would just say to those younger judge advocates who are still in the thick of the knife fight, always focus on the people and the purpose, and you'll never go wrong.
0: This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's, the Judge Advocate General's, Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.